2: Streaming and three CR
6: digital, podcast or audio on demand, and of course the website solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
7: Solidarity forever.
3: Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR's Saturday Breakfast show and uh, it's been a big week uh, and next week's going to be a bigger week, it's uh, NAIDOC week and as we know, beyond the bars, uh, the program that 3, 3CR has uh, continued to broadcast from the uh, prisons bringing the voice of Indigenous uh People who are incarcerated in our local prisons to air. Uh, a fantastic initiative and um, something that uh, is extraordinarily personal and um, fascinating to people who, uh, like me, who uh, aren't in prison and uh, do not know these people who have been gathered up in uh, this way. Uh, it, it talks about their dreams, their. Uh, uh, desires their lives uh and uh it is a uh an uh, extraordinary uh, set of programs and as uh, Robbie just said on the message to you that uh it starts on monday and it uh broadcasts every day of the week at starting at eleven am all live uh and uh An extraordinary initiative from your community, radio station 3CR. Um, Today on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, uh, we're going to talk to Kirsten O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Network. You may or may not know that with the uh, new... Uh, federal government, the social security system has had some changes. Uh, one of them is, of course, the uh, the end of the uh, dreadful cashless debit card. We'll see uh, what happens in that sphere, the uh, quarantining of people's uh, uh, funds um, and put into the hands of a, a private company uh, disempowering people at an extraordinary level, uh, completely begun and directed at Indigenous people, and uh, then followed through to uh, so called um, uh, test uh, places across the country, mo- mostly targeting um, uh, uh, poor uh, white people, basically, poor working class um, people. Uh, and, uh, and of course, with the previous government was expecting to roll it right across the entire country, including to, uh, aged uh, pensions Um, it obviously was their answer to uh, washing their hands of uh, social security and putting it into the hands of private industry but there has been changes uh, and uh, we're going to talk to Kirsten about what those changes are Uh, Workforce Australia takes over from job active on July the 4th. These horrible names, Workforce Australia. <laughs> anyway, she's going to give us some understanding of what's going to happen, uh, how what the rollout is like and how it's affecting people. Um, we're going to talk to Liz Walsh. She's uh, from the Victorian Socialists. Uh, there's a big rally today, pro-abortion rally, 12pm State Library. This is in response to what's happened in the US with the overturning of the Roe versus Wade by their incredibly stacked right-wing Supreme Court, uh, which uh, and uh, it, <laughs> there's a whole range of things that have been going on in the U.S. An estimated 25 U.S. states are expected to pass laws that restrict abortion, in as a result of the Supreme Court uh, ruling. And 13 already have trigger laws in place in anticipation of the decision being overturned, many of which involve total abortion bans, including in cases of rape. This is a direct attack on women's rights and their uh, autonomy over their own future and their own bodies. Uh, The fight's on once again. Uh, the, uh, this is the week that was is going to be on. Kevin, uh, goes through the week with a, uh, satirical comb and we follow that up with a, uh, a look at the launch of Acts of Cruelty, which is, uh, a book that was launched during, uh, last week during, uh, Refugee Week, which, uh, looks at the, it, quite forensically looks into, uh, the treatment of refugees when they come by plane, which, uh, is overlooked perhaps because of the incredibly violent and uh, virulent approach to uh, refugees who come by boat. But uh, in fact, there's so many similarities that uh, uh, Australia looks like a um, medieval country. So uh, we'll hear a few voices from that particular event. But before we do, some words about things that are going to happen this week.
8: A special winter concert to celebrate NAIDOC Week. Join Yampa Man and First Nations singer-songwriter, Pititu. Brett Lee's music is gentle, honest and from the heart. Thursday, the 7th of July, 6-8pm at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley. This is a free concert, but bookings are essential. Go to Monash City Council and search festivals and events for Piritu Winter Concert to get all the details and to make your booking. So
9: many faces to see.
8: Monash City Council is a 3CR supporter.
9: Nobody here I know. So many places to be. no
10: we walk
5: to the end
10: of Street And we Hi,
5: I'm John Harding. Happy Nadoc week, everybody. I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NADOC Saturday, the 9th of July a radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Belling. It's a walk down Currie Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people who made up the community of the Fitzroy blacks. Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry and a walk down Dirty Gertie, Gertrude Street, with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NAIDOC Saturday, 5.30pm, 9th of July, on the Let Your Freak Flag Fly show. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land.
4: Hi, I'm Munira from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
3: And you're back with Ernie on 3CR Breakfast, and we've got Kirsten O'Connell on the line. G'day, Kirsten. How are you?
2: I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you doing?
3: Good. Thanks for uh, getting up on this. Uh, I don't know what. It, I don't know where well, you're in Canberra, aren't
2: you? <laughs> no, I'm on Gadigal Country here in Sydney.
3: Oh, cool. Okay, but it's, uh, everyone tells me it's cold everywhere in Australia at the moment. <laughs>
2: That's right. I think yeah, it's a bit rough.
3: Yeah, yeah. Anti-Poverty Network's been looking at the new changes to the social security system and how it uh, actually affects people. Um, Can you give us a little bit of an understanding of this change to Workforce Australia and Job Active and the 100 point system and all the rest of it?
2: Yeah, so um, actually there's been a lot of talk about changes and how the system uh, is going to work differently for people and there are some differences but... The biggest problem is it's going to continue a lot of the really harmful um, and, you know, most um, unhelpful parts of the current system. So we're going to see a continuation of the same job agencies. We're going to see people having to do the same sorts of activities, lots of mandatory activities, particularly work for the Dole. Um, it's one of the worst ones. Um, the ways that it's different are that we're now going to have two classes of unemployed people. So we're going to see um, one group of people put into what they call online uh, services where they're not really dealing with a job agency at all, um, but they do have this points target, which people might have heard about, where you have to do your activities, you gamify your welfare, um, add up to your points target for the month, um, doing a range of different things. And for folks who there's about 200,000 people who will be in that system from the start, another uh, 600,000 who are going to have the points, have to do that sort of... Um, task of adding everything up, but they will also be with a job agency. So they'll still have those people in their life um, actually kind of dictating sort of what they need to do on top of having to jump through these hoops to get points.
3: Yeah. So what we're talking about is this kind of semi-privatized system that relies on the uh, computerisation of things as if it's uh, dealing with the fundamental issues that are happening for people who are unemployed.
2: That's right. I mean, what we have happening in this country is structural unemployment. We have people who are living in places where there are no jobs while there are other locations where jobs are available. We have people who aren't qualified for the jobs that are going where they live. Um, We have people who are being discriminated against in the workforce, whether that's because of disability um, because of their language that they speak, because of their, um, you know, cultural background and none of these are being addressed. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> age discrimination age. age discrimination is a massive one. Um, and right now, you know, we've got a couple of hundred thousand folks uh, in the system who are over 50 years old. Uh, so, yeah, there's so many barriers to work and none of them are going to be fixed uh, by, you know, um, cobbling together some points to, to get through your... Uh, Hoops every
3: month. They do say in their list on um, the website that uh, you know if you live in a place of low unemployment, uh, uh, low employment prospects, that uh, there is some wiggle room, um, assuming that, uh, and so that uh, you can have a lesser demand on you. Is that something that you've looked at?
2: Yeah. So one of the many problems is that we've got no transparency about how any of these so-called credits are going to work. Mm. So there's a range of things you can get credits for. It's very sinister. Um, You know, we've seen the unemployed workers, you describe it as a little bit like an episode of Black Mirror, um, where, you sure, you're going to get supposedly a credit if you live in a place where there's low employment prospects. You're going to get a credit if you're a certain age. You're going to get a credit if you've got a health condition. But at the end of the day, none of those things are going to create jobs. um, And the credits themselves are not actually going to be enough um, to reduce your overall, like you will have a little reduction in what you need to do, but they're not going to get rid of this yeah. whole system and, and re- replace yeah, yeah. what you're otherwise required to do. Uh,
3: it's actually quite fascinating for people who aren't on this system to realise things like, and it's very 18th century England, that people are not allowed to move to places that of, of high unemployment And expect to get social security. That's correct, isn't it?
2: That's right. And so, actually, this is just another of the very many things that are part of the current system that are going to be coming across that will continue into the new system. Um, We have a situation, for example, where some folks might be familiar with my colleague Jeremy Poxman uh, a couple of months ago moved from um, a place that's about halfway between Bathurst and Ballarat. Um, a tiny, tiny town with very few employment prospects because there's only a couple of thousand people living there, um, moved about an hour away over to Ballarat and, you know, got the call from Centrelink, uh, we're going to cut your payment. And that's because um, there was about 4.2% uh, unemployment in Ballarat, but four percent in Bathurst. and so they said, "Well, you've moved to a higher unemployment area," which is obviously ridiculous for so so many reasons. Um, but it does take away people's ability to really determine their course of their lives, and also to make sure that they're in a place where they're, you know, they're as supported as they can be while trying to survive on payments and trying to get into the back into the workforce. So, see, so so, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, it puts a joke on the idea that we live in a free society.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I don't think you have so many people who are surviving on welfare payments now or who have in recent years um, that would tell you that they feel like a respected and full and free citizen uh, of this society. Like the conditions that are placed on people and not just the conditions that are placed on people in terms of the activities you might have to do to get or to keep a payment, but also the payment itself um, really takes away your freedom because you have to kind of Struggle so much of your life and restrict yourself from so many activities, not only to remain eligible for the payment, but to actually survive on it at all.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. In fact, uh, the thing that really tells you that you're not part of society is that none of the ads apply to you. Yeah. All those sweet yeah. billet dues from advertisers no yeah. longer apply to you.
2: Absolutely, no one is chasing the job seeker dollar, <laughs> um, and you know, uh, we... except
3: the job agencies.
2: Well, no, absolutely. Well, they're chasing they're chasing public money to brutalise people on the job seeker payment. Um, but yeah, that is a good point. That is uh, such as there is a market that, that certainly is it.
3: Yeah, well, because there's a lot of money in poverty.
2: Absolutely, and there's a lot of people profiting from it. Um, just no one who's actually trying to survive in the system.
3: So you're not you're not seeing that uh, there is going to be a huge change. What about um, the um the removal of the cashless debit card?
2: Yeah, so I guess just before like, I step onto that, um, in terms of a huge change, there's lots of ways in which it won't change, but um, we do think that shifting to this more rigid point system um, is actually going to be a big negative change for people. Yeah. Um, some people will be okay, but, um, that yeah, it's creating a lot of risk. In terms of the cashless debit card, uh, it's been really frustrating trying to get straight answers out of Labor Party now, um, both since they took government, but also in the lead up to election day about what they mean. Um, they have said some things that kind of indicate making cashless welfare voluntary, which is.
3: But it was always, you know, but it was always voluntary, and also,
2: no, no, no. yeah, no, no, no. But you know that this thing the about right? It's the
4: problem with the definition.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say that that thing about. When people were struggling and the the whole idea of quarantining people's money was because they were in a poor state, But what they were doing was putting it right across the entire social security system.
6: Yeah.
2: I mean, it
3: always existed. That's my point.
2: Yeah. and, And sort of what they say when they mean it's voluntary is... Actually, nothing to do with the individual person's choice about how they want to live their life and how they're trying to manage their money. Um, there are a very, very small number of people in each community where the cashless debit card currently exists who've been consulted and who have had a say in whether people in that community are subjected to cashless uh. welfare. And so we don't actually have welfare recipients as a collective or individually, deciding whether the card is happening to them. Uh, It is voluntary insofar as, you know, the mayor in Seduna um, closed it up to the government and that's voluntary because he said the should be on the card so it's not voluntary at an individual level which if you were going to keep such a thing that's how you should do it but it actually just shouldn't exist at all it doesn't need to be there in a voluntary or compulsory capacity there are many 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 other programs the government should be investing in to support people who want help managing their income and with the variety of challenges they're facing.
3: Yeah yeah and uh, not only that what weasel words I mean everybody when you say voluntary you're assuming it's at an individual level.
2: Yes absolutely and that's one of the things that we've um, been really frustrated with you know at the moment the government's equivocation and their refusal to say clearly what they mean when they have said voluntary and it's Sort of they gave the impression that it would mean each individual could choose. And then slowly they've been walking that back now where we've seen um, the social services minister, Amanda Rishworth, um saying that, you know, she's hearing from communities that they want it. And I can guarantee you that that's not the majority of welfare recipients in those communities saying, yeah, yeah, impose this on us. <gasps>
3: Oh my God. And not to mention, um, so there's a couple of things here. One of the things I've been particularly interested in is the uh, use of a private company to administer social security, which is what the uh, divesting cashless debit card processes was really about, as far as I'm concerned. Um, They may not call it that, but that's exactly what I think it is. Um, what, What place does that put the government in, this new government in, in terms of the contracts that were made by the previous government, which that leads to, you know, does that mean that there can be any changes anyway?
2: Yeah, so we do have a big problem with people profiting um, from poverty in this country and the contracts that go out to companies uh, across a whole range of areas. So we obviously have some cashless welfare, um, some parts of that system, are very profitable for certain companies. Indu is the main one at the moment. Um, we have programs like Parents Next, mm. where parents are having their lives controlled and the choices they make about parenting mm. controlled by the government. Um, we have obviously got mutual obligations, out of control, private job agencies, um, literally, you know, manufacturing billionaires off the backs of the poorest people in the community and a range of other things. And, you know... One of the problems is that this is viewed by government as a saving because if they can sort of spend these billions of dollars um, putting these COPs in place, then the job the COPs are doing is actually kicking people off payments, making sure that the overall cost of payments is going down. So the privatisation component is a big problem, um, but actually the underlying problem is what's going on in the social security law. So at the end of the day, we think that there should be a high-quality public sector employment service, but if the law says you need to do these things um, in order to allow someone to continue receiving a payment, whether that person works for a private company or they're a public servant, if they have to impose those rules on people, that is going to keep hurting. So, you know, we do need to see things move back into the public service, but that is not going to go far enough to, to get it back into a protective system.
3: Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, let's go to the fact that uh, it's not actually helping people get jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, if we focus on the um, age discrimination and uh i think it's pretty clear that there is age discrimination and uh a lot of older people who uh, are are un- uh, can't get work now that's a that's a perfect example of how um the problem is not with the worker the problem is with the employers so you'd think that there would be more efforts made to uh, target employers rather than the workers
2: well, that would require employers to take responsibility for the way that they discriminate against people, wouldn't it? So, yeah, that's yeah, right. It, w- it would make more sense. Um, I think, you know, again, we have so many uh, different um, factors contributing to this. So, age discrimination is a huge one, but it's also whether the jobs are suitable. So, for example, a lot of older folks are going to have some level of like physical limitation that may not apply to younger people. Um, they also have higher risk in terms of injury and so forth. So if we're talking about a job like being a barista or shell stacking in a supermarket um, and a whole range of different jobs that, you know, people quite wrongly, I think, think of as unskilled work, those jobs are A, skilled, but B, they're also physically demanding in a way that um, when we have people who've got disabilities, which is another massive cohort of folks who are on unemployment payments, and when we've got people who are older, um, A, they may be less, physically able to do that work, but also that doing that work may put them at higher risk of um, short or long-term injury. So it is employment discrimination, but it's also much more than that. It's actually, do we have the right people for the right jobs? And where we don't, we shouldn't be forcing people into jobs.
3: Yeah, right. Okay. So in actual fact, there's, this is a really big issue that uh, everybody is actually, this society uh, hinges on on um, dealing with by being prescriptive and uh, injurious to the unemployed?
2: Yeah. It's hard not to feel um, that these systems are designed to punish people and anyone who has dealt with the social security system, particularly in the last, I mean, in the last couple of decades, but especially over the last um, decade, is that you feel like it's designed to um, make you feel desperate to get off it, whether or not you do have a job, and to find a way to exist without having to rely on income support, which is the opposite of what a safety net is supposed to be. It's an unsafety net and it's hurting people and it is in order to make budget savings off the backs of the poorest people um, in the community. And so, yeah, it's it's, it's not fun <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, it ties in with the whole campaign about not prisons but homes, really.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there is a deep um, problem with the way that, you know, we're living in a really violent colony. There's been a couple hundred years here now of uh, colonial violence inflicted upon the first peoples on this continent and those practices of violence have continued and spread uh, across a range of different people who are marginalised on the basis of who they are, whether that's because of their disability, because of their race, um, or because of, you know, the fact that they are poor. And we've got these cycles of poverty continuing where the kinds of things that people are criminalised for are things that you possibly need to do to try and survive when you don't have enough money to live. And then the fact that you do things to try and survive when you don't have enough money... Um, are then criminalised, and then you find yourself in a system that's then going to lock you out of the workforce and make things harder and harder again. So we do have um, this kind of symbiosis of what's happening with people who are being criminalised just for trying to exist. Um, And, yeah, you know, a supportive welfare system, something that would give people enough money to live, something that would actually invest more deeply in um, helping people get to a point where when they are entering the workforce they're more supported, they have uh, more stability and are better able to kind of engage in higher education or in the workforce, um, would you know, would go an awful long way to doing that process of, like, yeah, defunding prisons and actually having people um, feeling that they have better equipped to contribute.
3: The um, rollout of this new, new in inverted commas, system uh, is curious as well, isn't it? Uh, what was that, sorry? It's curious, said, yeah. the way it's been rolled out.
2: Oh. <laughs> so, so this has been my life for the past few weeks um, and a little bit longer, actually. But, yeah, the, the way that the government has rolled this out has already caused an awful lot of harm. People are confused. People are afraid. Yeah. Um, after the last couple of changes in the system, so particularly in 2015 and in 2018 which were the last two really big changes to employment services, the number of people being penalised skyrocketed, went up dramatically in a really short space of time. Now, obviously, we don't have people who, before a change, were jumping through all these hoops, doing everything the government said they had to, and then suddenly everyone just decided to go on strike and not do it anymore. <laughs> changes right. are hard. People are trying to learn the changes, and it's the people in the system, but it's also the people who work at the job agencies, and it's the people who work in the government
10: department yeah.
2: are trying to learn a system as well. So we have this system, like we have this situation where you've got people trying to learn a thing, and while they're trying to learn it, there is this... Um, you know, seeing weight hanging above them, ready to kind of knock them down. And the fact that we've had such a shambolic process already and the thing hasn't even started yet, communication has been late. Communication has been inconsistent. People are confused. They haven't been able to get answers when they've been trying to. When they're contacting the government to say, what's going to happen to me, they're being told, we can't tell you, you call back later. Um, so it's caused an awful lot of distress already um, and we don't think it is a good omen for what's going to happen um, as of Monday.
3: Oh well, there you go. Well, we'll have to have you back on to find out um, how how your constituents and your research yeah. is uh, panning out because yeah, yeah change is hard. It yeah, is crazy it's very difficult. How
2: intensive and if you make a wrong step, Ooh. you know that's your poverty payment out the door.
3: Yeah, thanks for talking to us this morning.
2: No worries. Thank you so much
11: for having me. I lost me job when me boss went broke First time in 30 years I'd been out of work I thought I'd apply for unemployment benefits So off I went down to Centrelink I stood in a line that stretched out the front door When I finally got to the counter I asked for a form They said I should have rung up or used the internet Cos that's the way they do things now at Centrelink Slightly disgruntled, I went home and made the call When I finally spoke to a human, it was half past four I was hot and dry and I needed a drink I'd put in a hard day's work at Siddling They asked all sorts of questions about who did what with who So wonder they didn't want to know the last time I had a poo They gave me a long list of documents to bring Tomorrow when I went back to I Now being unemployed is bloody hard work. I've been busier than a bookmaker's clerk. Paperwork and interviews take 40 hours a week. You think that I was working at Santaline? I had to prove who I was at least a hundred times. Passport and library card and unpaid parking fines. He should have known who I was, at least that's what you think. I was interviewed by my brother in law, he works at Centrelink. And then I had to see someone called a job provider. But he was on stress leaves, so I talked to his offsider. But old mate didn't have a clue. He was thick as two short planks. Seemed anyone can get a job working at Sandalink. He said I needed retraining and he sent me on my way to a seminar that taught me how to write a resume. I did a few courses and got a ticket in OHS. Now I'm fully qualified to work at Sandalink. Well, being unemployed is bloody hard work. I've been busier there than a bookmaker's clerk. Paperwork and interviews take 40 hours a week. You think that I was working for Sandalyn? Now I know public servants who don't work as hard as me. They get holidays and super and fifty grand a year. Now it's time for this injustice to end. I'm asking for a pay rise. From That little Johnny Howard, he's a clever little bloke Without us even knowing he's got us working for the dole He's bodgied up the figures, he didn't even blink Cos we've got full employment, we're all working for Centalink Yeah, being unemployed is bloody hard work I've been busier than a bookmaker's clerk Paperwork and interviews take forty hours a week. You think that I was working for Sandalink? I'm working me ass off here at Sandalink.
8: Hello, this is Dan Salton, and you're listening to 3CR Blackfella Radio, Melbourne.
9: Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Beyond the Bars started in 2002 and this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NAIDOC, from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website 3CR.org.au backslash beyond the bars.
4: Stand up. Stand up.
3: You're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, we've got Liz Walsh from On The Line. G'day Liz, how are you? Oh, good, thank you. Yeah, Liz is from the Victorian Socialists and you're part of the people who have uh, brought together people to rally at State Library Steps Today pro abortion rights protest. Uh, Can you give our listeners some of an understanding of why it was so important to organise this rally?
6: Right. Well, the um, the Supreme Court of the United States just um, handed down a ruling on Friday that stripped uh, millions of people of the right to abortion, the right to control their bodies, their you know, lives, essentially, um, which is a historic attack on the rights of women and, and pregnant people. Um, so, yeah, we think that this, this ruling, which uh, sends rights back, you know, fifty. Odd years, uh, needs to be met with rage all around the globe and protest, and we've seen big protests in the United States. Uh, but we also think it's important to stand in solidarity with those fighting back, and um, and to make it clear that they're not alone. That we we stand with them, um, and also because you know we need to make sure that the bigots in Australia um, are clear that we will. Um, ready to take a stand to fight them if they have tried anything
3: on here in Australia. Yeah, it seems amazing, doesn't it, that uh, something that has been fought for uh, so uh, hard and was won uh, here as well uh, should uh, be uh, allowed to slip from people's fingers.
6: It's just shocking, yeah, and it shows you not to take anything um, for granted, begin with, you know, that rights under capitalism can be taken from us and that we have to continually be vigilant um, and on the front foot and ready to respond if there's any attempt to undermine them. And of course in the United States there has been, you know, decades of campaigning by you know, uh, conservative biggest religious fanatics and so on to undermine women's rights and um, pregnant people's rights and that uh, we have actually seen, this is um, quite about stripping away of those rights in various states. So, you know, already I think in Texas there was a 6 abortion um, ban. Um, many states had uh, trigger bans on their books, so, you know, the only thing that was sort of in the way was um, the federal protection through the Roe v. Wade ruling. But as soon as that got overturned, you know, um, they were ready to, to implement total bans on, on abortion. So... You know, this is sort of... There has actually been a whole process of, of this coming and um, there are the other issues, you know, no federal uh, funding to abortion and things like that, which actually the Democrats supported. Um, and Biden himself, actually, in 1982, had voted... Uh, ..had expressed opposition he voted against v. Wade. Um, so... Um, the, the, this uh,
3: this uh, issue of attacking... Uh, women's rights, is a fundamental uh, battleground, you know, a line in the sand, isn't it? It, it, It's not a... It's it's no accident that this is one of the key elements of the far-rights attacks politically across the the world uh, against democratic rights, personal rights, um it's similar to the attack- i mean i know it's it it's even more profound but it's like the attacks on public education funding to public education they are they are a, a, a whistling a tune that is um uh to create a kind of um uh, you know a um I can't even, you know, what you know, like it's, it's like a feudal state system, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I can't even yes. describe it, you know. No,
6: I, I think you're right to say that. Um, yeah, this is this is uh, central to the far right kind of political vision all around the world, and um, and it's part of, I guess, this idea of, you know, the um, gender roles. You know, what is the role like of um, women in society? It's to be mothers and. To Incubators of babies and our personhood, our ability to determine our own futures—that uh, has all be subjugated to this, you know, quite you know, conservative vision. Um, and this whole, yeah, it's also about the sort of central control of the family as a society and reinforcing all of that. And you know, this—I think that that, yeah, understanding, um, like, yeah, women's oppression and then how that. You know, other oppressions often flow from that as well. Um, is really important. It's about, yeah, like reinforcing this authoritarian and coercive and conservative vision of society and um yeah, now in the US like yeah, there's millions and millions of people from all you know, ha- nearly half of uh, of women in the United States now will no longer have the ability to determine their their, you know, reproductive health and their their lives. It's just shocking.
3: I I saw um, one of the banners, uh, one of the signs that someone was showing at in the American demonstrations on the news, was uh, "It's not going to end abortion; it's going to end safe abortion."
6: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, obviously, um, women and pregnant people who don't want to carry a pregnancy to term, many of them um, will find other means to legal means to terminate that pregnancy and um, it will mean that, yeah, it won't be safe. You know, people, women used to die from backyard abortionists, you know, will be um, maimed horribly, you know, suffering terrible infections and hemorrhaging and, and so on. Um, you know, things can be a little different today because there's access to um, like abortion uh, drugs, so I U 486 which, you know, could be male to people, you know, but at least they're not being administered by health professionals, that so people are not going to be um, monitored to see how they go on them. Um, they can still be you know, partial miscarriages that then lead to infections and things like that, so it's not completely safe, it's not monitored by health professionals. And, um, yeah, and also obviously there'll be a situation where wealthy women are able to fly out more easily to other states that... Um, Where abortion continues to be legal, but for working class, for women, women of colour, who are more marginalised, they they're they're going to be particularly impacted by this ruling. And um, yeah, I I guess yeah, it's, it's pretty terrifying to think that this is yeah that the that.
3: The range of speakers that you've got at that are, have been announced is interesting because, as you say uh in your um uh announcement of the event that uh, uh it's it's not not just abortion rights it's taking a uh a um aim at all of those elements of our society that have been calling for Uh, their rights, including Mm -hmm. LBGTQ people, uh, because this conservative um, right... Well, I don't even know if it's purely conservative. I think it's just right-wing mania, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. far-right mania, which is actually underpinning our uh, desire to enshrine the rights, in averted commas, of old white men. I mean, really. Yeah,
6: well, I mean... um we saw in uh, Clarence Thomas's opinion um, when the ruling came down. He's one of the Supreme Court judges that he said that uh, not just, you know, this was just the beginning. It's not just abortion rights that they're after. So it's a massive, a massive thing that they've taken, uh, but also that they should revisit things like the right to con- contraception. Um the right to same sex marriage and even um the overturning of anti sodomy laws, so the right of um same sex uh se- consensual sexual relations you know the, the um that gay sex uh, should be re banned
10: oh my god
6: <laughs> so yeah so um so they are on the rampage these you know extremist far right judges um you know, in order to stop them it's going to take a mass movement on the streets. not really looking to politicians, to the Democrats who have allowed allow this state of affairs really to transpire. You know, they never actually legislated for federal protection for abortion when they had the control of the both of the houses. They let this situation, this vulnerability for abortion rights continue because they didn't want to rock the boat against all of their bigots and misogynists in their ranks. Um, so it's been really inspiring to see that people have taken to the streets. I think it, yeah, it makes it doubly important that we do um, the same too.
3: Yeah, so that's what's going to happen today. 12 uh, p.m. State Library steps. we will all got to be there.
6: Yeah, I hope to see many thousands. It looks like there are thousands of people prepared to come um, and also prepared to take a stand around our own right to choose here. We don't have free abortion in Australia. We don't have it being um, properly accessible. It's far too few services. So we also have issues to raise ourselves. Um, So that's another reason for us to see thousands out there today.
3: Yeah, and of course, that particularly affects rural uh, people, doesn't it? Because uh, people in the past, Tasmanians, women, always had to come to Melbourne in order to do this. (laughs) Uh, it was a That's bit like right. the Irish having to go to England because it was uh, not allowed there. It was illegal. I mean, yeah. there's so much um, merely mouthness going on, isn't there?
6: Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, abortions, um, just in terms of the cost to begin with, you know, can with you know Medicare um, funding can still cost around six hundred dollars uh, surgical abortions, um, and you know, maybe two hundred or more. Um, for medical abortions, and that's because of particularly the cost of the ultrasounds that you're required to get, the dating scans to know what you know how far along you are, and you know so what um, procedures appropriate. You know the fact that there's all these private providers of imaging uh, rather than these publicly funded, publicly run services is pretty outrageous, and could be real barriers to poor women being able to access um, abortion. Um, and then yeah, the the fact that there's so few providers. Very few people can get um, abortions through public hospitals. Um, basically, have to be extremely marginalised in order to access that or, um, you know, in a situation of needing a late-term abortion. Um, but, yeah, there, there's far too few providers. Um, a lot of them are private or they're public clinics, but so we know that there's been a massive underfunding of community health uh, by both sides of par- um, Parliament. Uh, and so, yeah, so particularly regional women who have... Um, you know, bad access to public health already. Also need to travel long distances, maybe have an overnight stay as well in Melbourne to be able to access, you know, the abortion service, which adds to the cost and adds, again, to significant barriers. And, you know, so we do have a situation where Aboriginal women um, and, yeah, Aboriginal women have have real barriers to being able to exercise their rights. Um, So we'll be demanding, you know, for free abortion for these services to be properly bulk-billed and for a real investment in our public health system.
3: Yeah, so 12 p.m., State Library Steps, Pro Abortion Rally. Thanks very much for talking to us this morning. Thanks, Annie. 3CR Community Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976.
7: A weak solidarity, breaky team listener, when let's open with a little quiz. In the NATO-trained-killing war room in Madrid, presumably with the ghost of Franco guarding them, Troubler joined in the attacks on evil Russia and evil China. Indeed, instigated the attacks on evil China, with the US of the UN of the world's NATO deciding China also somehow poses a major threat to liberty, freedom and democracy in Europe. And asked whether True Blue Aussie supported the tough talk would derail the so-called reset of relations with evil China, True Blue Aussie said it was strongly supportive of the US of NATO communique understandable seeing as we said it was true blue aussie which raised the threat of evil china so our big question is was the train killer rhetoric spoken by a caring business class party supremo and would be big supremo constable peter duffer or b big supremo anthony all Bing the answer of course is easy it could have been either Meanwhile, our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, was over in Malaysia telling them what a serious threat to our security was, evil China. And back here, the U.S. Arb, and therefore True Blue so concerned at the possibility of China establishing train-killer bases in the Asia-Pacific region that the U.S. Arb, and therefore True agreed the U.S. Arb would have to expand its bases here here in Troubled was he had across the Asia Pacific region. Send in the Marines, even more the Marines, and they said they had to extend their bases because no one, and particularly we know who, uh, particularly um, we know who, has a right to have bases in the Asia Pacific region without blushing. What about, and how's this for a stupid thought listener, no country having bases in the Asia-Pacific region? If they're going to fight over who's the biggest capitalist bully, mine's bigger than yours, then leave us out of it. Still, no doubt the merchants of death will be rubbing their hands as they hear the war talk from the Madrid war room, which no doubt they're stirring. Evil Russia has been disturbed that U.S. of NATO has been encircling it. No justification for war crimes, but no excuse for the hypocrisy of the U.S. of NATO either. So in response to that concern, U.S. of NATO added two more countries on the Russian border just to make war is peace that little bit more, war is peaceful. Fulfilling the U.S. of promise that NATO would not expand toward the Russian border. Having mentioned Franco, can I – well, doesn't matter, I'm going to – told you a story nothing to do with this week. Back in November 1975, in the same week that Kersak-Whitlam, Franco died – well, I think he'd been brain dead for a fair while, and my partner and I were in Perth. So when we heard the news, we decided to find a Spanish restaurant and celebrate. But when we sat down, we noticed the waiters all looking and dressed very formally, cummerbunds and things, and thought maybe we've chosen the wrong lot. So as the waiter poured us a glass of red, I said, "Are we celebrating or commiserating tonight?" And he said, "We are celebrating, comrade." And from then on, we had this wild night with the staff. We mentioned last week how our old bait Innes will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group is nothing if not logical, like Innes declaring the economy crippling dollar an hour to the lowest of low paid based on a 5.1% inflation rate got it so wrong. Because Innes informed us he supported the lowest of low paid keeping up with inflation, but the real inflation rate was 3 point something percent, and so the lowest of low paid should have got two point something percent uh keeping up well well, as we said nothing if not logical the old and certainly predictable another of our favorites alan joystick of the airline which used to be our airline well it's almost still ours as we seem to pay for everything we, we just don't get the profits anymore alan gets those the rewards for efficiency over inefficiency but he's so generous a supremo that he promised staff a five thousand dollar bonus for their contributions through the pandemic the goodness of his heart what a generous generous caring employer except at the same time he's making an offer they can't refuse. Copper two-year wage freeze and then a 2% wage rise in three years' time, a a touch behind the projected three-year high inflation rates. But Alan says if staff reject the offer they can't reject, can't refuse, then they won't get the five grand, which the usual evil union suspects carry on won't nearly compensate for all they'll lose over that time ungrateful, ungrateful, evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers. And Alan says the bonus has nothing to do with the offer they can't refuse, showing that, like, you know, someone is right up there in the logic department, nothing to do with other than they won't get it unless... And as for these delays and confusion at airports, Alan informed us they have nothing to do with the airline that used to be. It's down 100% to the privatised airports which also used to be. So passengers stop blaming poor Alan. Oh, and did you see another very, very caring employer, Tony Adamo, real name of the Kent pub in North Carlton, says due to rising costs and staff shortages, he has been forced to slash his workers' pay. What's that economic theory that staff shortages will mean higher pay, but but forced to slash their wages because he so cares for them? Ungrateful, ungrateful staff said they were frustrated and pissed off. Have they no concern for their caring employer? We can be sure all responsible citizens who support good caring employers will be rushing down to the Kent Hotel to support the wage cuts. And what were the rising costs, Tony? Wages. Crippling bloody wages. Workers are so, so selfish, proven by the fact they say they're pissed off. What disrespect. Doesn't that say at all about the greed of workers? Down the road at Melbourne Uni, more wonderful news. After years of slashing thousands of staff, the Vice-Chancellor, on a package worth about two mil a year, announced a record $584 million profit, or or, sorry, surplus. Sadly, he said the 584 mil was not available for day-to-day teaching, research or operations and the thousands and thousands used to do bad luck he he didn't tell us what it was there for big economic guru jim chalmers capital said he would look at broadening the diversity of the reserve profits bank Board, whose current diversity ranges from far right to far right, but would not guarantee he would appoint anyone representing workers. Yet mentioned that during the nuclear hawk world's greatest worst treasurer Paul Accord period, ACTU secretary Little Billy Kilt wage rises had been on the board, and wasn't that one of the great working class successes? Uh, so there was no one representing the workers then either. The ever-helpful Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin offered a hint for preventing bacon spitting fat all over the place. Add, wait for it, add salt to the fat. Add salt to the salt an assault on one's person speaking of assault in the week that was sport the that was smart award of the week the collingwood footy president jeff Nobrain, for the very 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 funny joke he cracked about serial offender jordan de stupid stupid's misogynist and sexist performance in bali cracked in front of an audience of women who surprise surprise didn't see the joke My word, Jeff's made a big difference since they jettisoned Eddie McGuire, you so poor. Then again, I guess sexism and misogyny and racism and homophobia come as a package deal. Nonetheless, when Eddie was sexist or racist, he wasn't sexist or racist. There wasn't a sexist or racist bone in his body. He kept telling us, keeps telling us. And we can be sure that when Jeff was sexist and misogynistic, he most certainly was not sexist and misogynistic. Indeed, while the young women in the audience didn't exactly piss themselves laughing... One much more sensible woman, Lord Rupert of Wapping's in-depth columnist Rita Panahy Deep Thinkers, attacked the women who didn't laugh and the odd critic who thought Jeff May just have been a touch sexist and misogynistic by declaring he was merely continuing the true blue Aussie tradition of larrycanism having a laugh, just having a bit of fun, and political correctness is taking the fun out of life. In fact, let's not waste the opportunity. Rita, you've stepped up the Feminist Solidarity of the Week award. Still on sport, doesn't it make us proud, proud, proud to be true blue Aussies every time we see that other serial performer, Nick curiosity Larrican display our Larrigan sense of humor spitting at patrons bashing balls at people abusing officials smashing rackets and decrying how unfairly the world treats him yes our chests burst with patriotic pride Now, spare a thought for poor AG hell for the planet thwarted in its attempt to demerge it, a hive off the highly polluting fossils, making it one of the true blue Aussies' biggest polluters under a new benign name and retaining the AGL moniker for the bits that aren't so polluting, with the company telling us this created a tough situation. Uh, What makes it so tough? The fact that the name A.G. held for the planet will still be associated with massive pollution. Uh, but couldn't you overcome that by not massive polluting? Oh, come on, be sensible. Our shareholders have to live. And finally, while caring employers are so distraught at this dollar-an-hour wage rise for the lowest of low paid, which, as Innes says, should have been 2-point-something percent and which forced poor Tony to slash wages and also to freeze them altogether, for Alan, the latest report shows the retail sector, we're told every time workers ask for a pay rise is so struggling and battling to survive, has posted record-high sales... Five months in a row. So that's great news for lazy, avaricious workers. Caring employers will be telling us any time, for the first time, a, his, a bit of history, that the time is right for a big, big pay rise. Whee! Good morning.
3: Uh, and thank you very much, Kevin, for a very enlightening this is the week that was. Uh, before we go on to our next segment, which is all about uh, acts of cruelty, uh I'll remind you about some things that are happening next week.
4: Get up, stand up. Stand
9: up for your right. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Up, Beyond stand the Bars up. is 3CR's annual prison radio series right. where we share the mic Get with up, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women stand up in Victoria's prisons.
4: Right. Get up, stand up.
9: Beyond stand the Bars started in 2002. And this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NADOC from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website 3cr.org.au backslash Beyond the Bars.
8: A special winter concert to celebrate NAIDOC Week. Join Yampa Man and First Nations singer-songwriter, Pititou. Brett Lee's music is gentle, honest and from the heart. Thursday, the 7th of July, 6-8pm to at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley. This is a free concert, but bookings are essential. Go to Monash City Council and search festivals and events for Pititou Winter Concert to get all the details and to make your booking. So
9: many faces to see.
8: Monash City Council is a three CR supporter.
9: Nobody here, I know. So many places to be. No where to go.
10: Tide by side, we walk along to the end of
5: Gertrude Street. And we
10: pop
5: for a Hi, I'm John Harding. Happy NADOC week, everybody. I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NAIDOC Saturday, the 9th of July. A radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Belling. It's a walk down Koori Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people. Who made up the community of the Fitzroy Blacks? Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry, and a walk down Dirty Gertie Gertrude Street with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NADOC Saturday, 5:30 p.m., 9th of July, on the Let Your Freak Flag Fly show. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land.
3: Closer and closer to its yeah, all the things that are happening, and of course we've got the rally, the pro abortion rally twelve uh p m uh, today at uh, the state library steps, and you might be aware that there's going to be a gathering at the same place tomorrow on Sunday at eleven a m uh, uh, to honour Julian Assange, it's his birthday, but it's also to call for uh, his return to Australia rather than extradition to the US. Uh, crimes that are non-existent should not be uh, uh, taking uh, a man of Julian Assange's stature to an American prison. Um, everything is on the line. Uh we're going to go now to a uh, launch that was happened uh, during Refugee Week, which was for Aileen Crowe's uh, book uh, Acts of Cruelty, which is uh, focuses on the experiences of people who have called for uh, asylum in Australia when they've arrived by plane and the poorless system that we have in Australia uh, that uh, undermines our. Uh, credibility as a just nation uh, to begin we hear from Suresh Sundram who is the Professor of Psychiatry at Monash University uh, he explains why he's at the launch and after that we'll hear from Pamela Kerr who was always also there, she is a long term refugee advocate
1: Welcome everyone to the Melbourne launch of Aileen Crow's very important new book, Acts of Cruelty. My name is Suresh Thundrum. I'm the Chair and Head of Psychiatry at Monash University. uh, And have been in the asylum seeker space for about 18 years or so, so much less time than Aileen and some of the other people on the panel tonight. Uh, But in particular, working around the health uh, and mental health of, of asylum seekers and refugees, as well as providing advice to a whole list of organisations such as UNHCR and national governments um, and national and international human rights organisations. There are, from UNHCR estimates, last month, mid-March, about 100 million displaced people globally. Of this there are about 40 million children. Displaced persons can of course be anybody that had to leave their home because of conflict, war, natural disaster, persecution. And of that, there's probably in the order of about 50 to 60 million. And another 40 million have had to cross a national border. In crossing a national border, your status changes. You go from being an internally displaced person to being an asylum seeker or refugee. For those of you who may not be familiar, all refugees were once asylum seekers because an asylum seeker is someone who is seeking the protection of another country because they are unable or unwilling to return to their country of usual residence or birth because they have a reasonable fear of being persecuted. To become a refugee, your fear of persecution must be for race, religion, nationality or membership of a particular social or political party or group. The important points of that are that of course there are currently about 27 million refugees in the world. That includes People displaced recently from Ukraine and people displaced from <coughs> Afghanistan in addition to that there are over four and a half million people seeking asylum to go from being a refugee from an asylum seeker to being a refugee you need to have been assessed by somebody and that somebody can be an international agency like UNHCR, or it can be the authorized agency of a country such as the Australian Department of Immigration and you then need to have met the criteria defined in the Geneva Convention the 1951 Convention or the 67 protocol which is the expansion of the Convention to those criteria that I mentioned before but of course you'd soon realize that there are many 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 people who are persecuted for reasons that are not related to those factors that I've just mentioned. People persecuted for their gender identity, people persecuted for their sexual identity, people persecuted because of family violence, children and adults who are enslaved. enslaved. There are a whole range of other reasons which are not covered under the standard Geneva Convention, and for which the United Nations has developed a range of other tools or instruments, conventions, treaties that cover a whole range of additional uh, categories for which people can seek the protection of another country. Australia has a proud tradition of developing many of these instruments and of participating in their creation including the 1951 Convention, when H. Evatt was a major contributor to the development, along with others. Australia is also a signatory to all of these conventions and treaties which protect people and which place an obligation upon signatory states to provide that protection for people who come asking. Australia differs from many of the other countries which we traditionally identify as host countries for refugees and asylum seekers, countries such as the United States, Canada, countries in the European Union, because Australia has no Bill of Human Rights or Charter of Human Rights or any enshrinement within the Constitution that either says that we are obligated to adhere these international treaties or conventions, or that we have any inherent need to respect the rights of others who are not Australian citizens or permanent residents. So as a consequence, although Australia may choose to oblige these conventions and treaties because it wants to be perceived as a good, solid global citizen, there's no legal compunction for it to do so. That's led, of course, to a very slippery slope. A slippery slope that sees Australia being able to wriggle in its adherence to the letter of the instrument rather than the spirit of the instrument. Australia takes currently 13,750 refugees from offshore places. These are people in camps, these are people who've been identified by UNHCR as requiring the most urgent protection. UNHCR lists about 200,000 people each year as the most vulnerable, the most endangered. It lists those 200,000 and not the 27 million, because it knows it cannot find space for 27 million, but it thinks it can find space for 200,000. Based on those estimates, the current queue that people are going to seek to jump is in the order of about 135 years. The implication of that, of course, is that 13,750 out of 27 million is a tiny number. However, in the global scheme of things, it puts Australia usually about 3 or 4 in the world behind the US and thankfully the US again. There was a period of time which some of you may remember where the US reduced its intake to zero. Canada, which has been a generous Taker of refugees. And then Australia. However, there's something that should strike you about the 200,000, because if there are 200,000 people being taken in each year, then what happens to the other 26.8 or 26.9 million refugees? Where are they? Well, they are in countries which, generally speaking, are adjacent to the source countries from where the refugees came. So to give you recent examples, Poland has about 3 million Ukrainians living in it, which is about 1 of its population, give or take, or one thirteenth. That's about 6%. Lebanon has hosted 1 million Syrian refugees in a population of about 6 to 7 million. That's about 114. If you were to think if Australia was to host a similar number of refugees, it would need to take in the order of 4 to 5 million people. It takes 13,700 Other countries, such as Germany, which is, I think, being the par exemplar of a generous refugee policy under Angela Merkel, took in just over a million Syrians and others at the time of the conflict about five or six years ago. That's still a million out of 75 million, which is only about 1.3%. But it makes Australia and our neighbour New Zealand pale into insignificance. People don't wait 135 years in queues. People try and save themselves and try and save their families. They do desperate acts to try and reach places of safety and security where they believe that they will be afforded protection. Australia has a reputation of being a safe and generous country and so people, knowing no better, came to seek the protection of Australia. They came in a variety of ways. They came by plane, and I'll come back to that because that's the central theme of Alien's book, but they also came by other mechanisms. They came by boat, and they've come through undocumented uh, mechanisms. There are estimated in Australia currently by the Refugee Council uh, last year somewhere between 90 to 100,000 undocumented migrants or people on vulnerable, uh, in, in a vulnerable status with regards to their visas. So that incorporates asylum seekers, it incorporates undocumented migrants, it incorporates others. Of those, approximately 40% are in Victoria, so give or take about 40-odd thousand people in Victoria currently are in a vulnerable situation because of their visa. Of those people, somewhere around 30 to 40,000 people nationally are people who are asylum seekers who are seeking the protection of Australia. Many of those people were people who arrived by boat and who were then subjected to a series of policy and legislative changes which began in 2012 and which have continued up until today. Many of these people were placed in offshore regional processing centres on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and Nauru of the order of about 4,100. There are about 35,000 people who are seeking asylum, who arrived by boat, who've been told that they won't be permitted to settle in Australia, even though they might have been granted temporary protection visas. In addition to that, they are the people who are the subject of Aileen's book, and more importantly, the subject of Aileen's work over the last two to three decades. I can't underemphasise underestimate the importance of her work with these cohorts of people
0: I want to thank Eileen because this book is about the secret business that went on in the immigration department while the politicians were screaming about boats and detention centers and all the stuff that was going on meanwhile We were trying to find out what was happening at the airports as people came through. And there were politicians who did ask questions and they were damned hard to get the answers about how many people were turned away and what was going on at the gates. I only had a small window in that I'd get a phone call from the detention centre down the road and someone would say, there's a woman here crying. She needs to talk to you wasn't a lot of information. I went in, I met a woman, she'd flown in by plane, she'd come in on a visa for some sort of a sporting event. And then the story, she, her, she was um, a high profile health provider and in, um, there'd been a change of government and uh, the people in her office had disappeared. In fact, some of them had been murdered. And a colleague said to her, you have to leave the country. She said, I can't, I've got children. She said, you take the children up the bush and give them to your family and you get out or you'll have, your children will be orphans. She came in on a plane and she was questioned for 10 hours at Melbourne Airport. And I said to her, why do you think I was questioned? She was sharp as a tack. She said I was the only black woman on the plane. Her story was one of many. She came in on a visa. She wanted to seek asylum. She had no choice. Um, She'd seen... She was clever. She'd seen there was a sporting event. Sporting events, you know, in Australia, they're the Holy Grail. Um, A lot of people come in and she was going to apply for asylum. They gazumped her at the airport They did not pass her through customs, which meant she went into detention. And she was there for six weeks, sitting in a television room one night, crying her eyes out when this old Sri Lankan bloke who'd been there for years and knew the ropes, he went over and said, what's up? Why are you crying? And she told him, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this place. I keep asking them, can I speak to a lawyer? What am I going to do? Um, I'm stuck here. No one will... Immigration keeps saying, wait, wait, be patient. And that's why I got the call. And, of course, we could connect her up with uh, legal assistance. Now, that came at a time in 2014 when the government removed legal... There was an automatic program called IAAAS... IAAA is. I'm getting old, I forget. (laughs) But everybody got legal assistance when they were put in detention. Um, Then they got rid of it, of course, so they just let them lie there. And she was one of many uh, cases, and they'd come in by plane. Um, This was secret business that was going on at the airport's I can tell you there were Saudi girls who came in. Now, as you know, until recently, the law has changed. Now, anyone under, over 18 doesn't have to have a letter from their male guardian authorising them to travel. But all through that time, they had to have this letter authorising their travel. And these Saudi girls were getting out for very obvious reasons. And I know that... Some Saudi girls told me they knew somebody had been turned back by border force. Can you imagine? Those bastards. So um, then the crunch came when this one evening I was called in to visits, and there was a man with his wife and three children from a Gulf state He was very dignified and he clearly um, had come from some prosperous background. It turned out he was a poet, a writer, um, a soldier and he'd been a representative in Geneva. And he said to me, in absolute (laughs) disgust, we're sitting in the visits area, some of you have visited detention, you know what it's like, it's pretty grim. And he said, Pamela, this place is a prison. I visited camps for my country that were better equipped than this place. Now he came in, he was on the amnesty rescue list, he was known, he made a big mistake. He got to the counter at immigration and he said, would you please direct me to where I can seek asylum. You don't do that in Australia, you scurry through and you hope for the best. When I went to Rome, I was amazed to see a counter that said, anybody wishing to contact immigration, go to Cubicle 5. My God, they're actually telling people how to go there. And then once I was in Indonesia, being deported, unfortunately, but we won't go into that, and there I stood in a queue and I watched this officer with a computer at the end of the Qantas area with two phones calling out the passports of every non-Anglo-Saxon-looking person and double-checking their documents to make sure that they had the appropriate visa to get on the plane to come to Australia. Yes, there's dirty business going on in this country and thank God Eileen has written a book. It is complex, it's deep because it's about the way in which the legal system has changed. That comment by Van Dusa is just so cutting to think an Australian judge says the legal um, decision is totally correct, the moral decision is reprehensible, it's chilling. But that is the state of things. But we've got a chance now. We've got a change of government. We know Labor are nervous around this area. Um, everybody they've made it a political football but we have hopes that there will be an end to some of this cruelty and in the end if we're really good at it we'll end the cruelty once and for all
3: yes that was Pamela Kerr uh, refugee uh, um, activist Um, yes that's right Australia and its uh, just face anyway uh, that's the end of the program. Uh, we uh, went to the Anti Poverty Network speaking to Kirsten O'Connell about the impending changes starting on Monday to the social security system, changes or not. Uh, Liz Walsh told us about the uh, pro abortion rally that's happening today, 12 pm State Library steps, speakers included. Uh, this is the week that was, and uh, a look at the launch Acts of Cruelty, Aileen Crow's book. Uh, it's published by Palava. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with an Australian band, Friends Pikelet. Talk to you next week.
5: No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now.
0: Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.